Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to episode number 50, the big 5-0 of the e-commerce Fuel Podcast. Appreciate you listening. And if, if you've been listening for, for all 50 episodes, I'm not sure if anyone has been, but if you have been, if you're, if you're that much of a, of a masochist, <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate you being a loyal listener and sticking with me. And, and if you've come in somewhere along the way, again, just as much. Thank you. I appreciate you supporting the podcast and listening. If my download stats uh, weren't there, if you guys weren't listening on a, on a weekly basis, I would not be doing this. So hopefully you've gotten some value out of it and looking forward to episodes, the next 50 episodes and hopefully many more after that. So today going to be doing something a little bit differently. I actually am going to be with you solely today. No one else coming in and talking about something I've been thinking a lot about. Don't, don't want to spoil, uh, spoil too much of today's topic, but it's on investing and particularly how you should think about investing in your business and personally. Where do those two overlap? How much should you give to each one and how should you be investing, particularly uh, passively in your own, you know, outside of your business? So something I've been thinking, thinking quite a bit about recently and, and just kind of talk a lot about that today in today's episode. It's going to be over at ecommercefuel.com forward slash investing. And, you know, this will actually be one I think that might spawn a really interesting discussion, some interesting comments. Uh, head on over there, please. Let me know what you think. I would be really curious to get your take, positive or negative. I'm sure there'll be plenty of both based on today's episode. But before we dive in, of course, got to do a first sale shout out. And this one's going out to Ben Stewart from readyquadcopters.com. Ben writes in, I've been uh, ramping up my business after my first sale starting in January. I kicked things off with eBay, which was helpful for building momentum and have now built revenue up to a few thousand dollars a month on my store. Thanks so much for everything. And I'm looking forward to your continuing content. Uh, ben, congratulations, man. That's, that's awesome using eBay to kind of kickstart uh, your business up to a couple, couple K in revenue per, per month. And ready quadcopters, you know, uh, <laughs> I think those are the kind of thing, I don't know if you guys have seen these, but pretty crazy, you know, two, 300 bucks, you can get a, a little quadcopter, which is like a helicopter, but with four different propellers, blades, I'm not sure what they're called, uh, little spinny things, that's the technical term. Uh, so you can do some cool things with them. I think these are the things, obviously, that Amazon has talked about using at some point in the distant future, the drones to deliver, deliver your stuff, and, and people are uh, getting them all over with little cameras and remote controls, they're, they're pretty cool. So Ben, I uh, hope things continue to go well, and thanks so much for writing. All right, let's dive into today's discussion with myself, a little monologue rather, on where you should be investing your money as an e-commerce entrepreneur. Was planning on doing an episode like this for a couple of weeks, so it was cool when the guys over at the Tropical MBA, Dan and Ian, they did one that uh, was kind of similar in scope. Uh, we'll link up to that. Uh, definitely worth a listen. Also nice because I can steal all of their best ideas and sound much smarter on their backs. Uh, not not shameless or shameful at all. But I really want to talk about this. It's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. How do you allocate your financial resources across your business, across your uh, you know your personal investments, opportunities outside your business? How do you do that? So I have a few ideas I've been thinking about a lot recently and want to share. First, first kind of a pillar point, at least, is your business is usually going to be your best bet. 
It really is. When you think about how much money you can get, 10% in the stock market's a great return, right? But if you've got a business that, that's doing well and you can invest in, in the right ways back into that, you're almost certainly going get, to get more than that. And one thing I wanted to do throughout this whole process is I wanted to give you a sense of where I'm investing my personal money. And I wanted to do that in a way that was transparent, but not gaudy. <laughs> I mean, I think it'd be kind of weird to talk about actual net worth and things. So what I decided to do was give you a, a percent breakdown of, you know, as a percent of my net worth, where my assets are, where I have my money. So you can get a sense of if I'm actually doing this in my own real life. And so for me, I looked at my business and assumed uh, if I took a two and a half X multiple on the net income for my business roughly, that's the value of my business. And so it currently makes up right about half of of my net worth, 47%. And so I'm definitely heavily invested more than anything else in my business because I think it really is the best tool you have for making money if you have a profitable model. That's, That's a big if, right? If you're starting out and you don't have a viable model yet, if, if you haven't really proven a concept, I think it's important to really bootstrap until then. I think this is, can be dangerous if you take this advice to say, hey, go out and take all of your net worth and plow it into a business model and hope that it works. That's not what I'm saying. I think bootstrapping and being scrappy is really important until you prove that model. Or if you are going to use some funds, use a small, you know, try to use a small percentage of your, of your net worth to get that business validated first before you really start cranking money into there. So there's an interesting quote that Jim Rogers, Jim Rogers is, is a pretty famous investor, did really well with the quantum fund. He's traveled all over the world in terms of looking at investment opportunities, understands really international finance and international investments and emerging markets really well. A great book of his, I mentioned on a, on a, on a recent podcast with, with uh, Drew, it's called Street Smarts. I highly recommend it. He also wrote a great book called Investment Biker, which is kind of half travel saga and half investment primer. Very, both are, are fantastic books. But he wrote in his most recent book, uh, if you want to make a lot of money, resist diversification. Brokers promote the notion that everyone should diversify, but that is mainly to protect themselves. That is the brokers. The way to get rich is to find out what is good, what you're good at, focus on it and concentrate your resources there. But make very sure you are right because it's also a fast way to go broke. So really, really cool quote, I think. And I think, I think he's dead on. So something, something to think about. I mean, and also, and you think about, if you think about your returns that you're going to get from running and buying a business asset, especially a smaller business asset, take a little case study, for example. Let's say for the case of argument, we were looking to buy, either buy or continue to run on our own, a small business that makes, let's say, 100k just to make it easy. So that business, let's say it's a small e-commerce business, that's roughly going to be worth about 300k. If you use, you know, an average 3x multiple, you could sell that asset for $300,000. So when you look at it like that, if you invest $300,000 to generate $100,000 in cash flow, you're in effect getting a 33% return on your money, which is is pretty impressive. And if you look at how much you know, capital you would need to generate that cash flow, that $100,000 at, let's say, a, a fairly safe rate. Let's use a 5% rate. And that's actually a pretty aggressive rate because to get 5% now, I mean, it's, you know, CDs pay, what, 1%? <laughs> so 5%, you can get that maybe with some bonds, but you're taking on a little bit of risk. But let's just use 5% for the sake of argument. You would need $2 million to generate that $100,000 in cash flow every year at a 5% rate. So, 
$2 million to generate 100K or $300,000 to generate 100K in terms of what it would cost to buy a business like that. So huge difference in the ability. If you have the skills to run that business, to take on a little bit of uncertainty, and obviously this is not a perfect example because even a risky bond that pays 5% is going to be, it's probably going to be less risky as a small business. There's there's more uncertainty. There's more skills you need. It's not passive. So it, it's not a perfect comparison, but I think it makes a pretty interesting point of how much more you can generate in cash flow and earnings with your own business versus traditional. Point number two, your business is usually your best bet. And uh, you know those that are paying attention will notice that's exactly the same point as point number one, with the one difference of a, a large, bold, underlined emphasis on usually. There are some times when you need to be careful about reinvesting back into your business. Uh, you know, with a business, especially a small niche business, you're going to have suboptimal returns, diminishing returns at some point. Early on, when you're scaling up, the money that you employ in terms of uh, you know getting that that first uh, first year revenue is going to be probably the most, not always, but usually the best ROI money because you're going from nothing to something. And then as you scale up and as you start to maybe bump into the to the not the limits of the niche because it's I mean there's always room to grow, right? But it's a lot harder to go from, you know, it's a lot harder to go from getting 10% of your market share, zero to 10%, as opposed to going 10% to 20%. It just, it's a lot of times it takes more work. And so same kind of thing. Think through, are you spending your money on your business because you know, hey, this is something we really need. I know this will bring in more sales. It's something that we're fairly confident is really going to help the business grow. Or are you are you spending it because you think, hey, I've got this extra cash lying around. I should probably do something with it. Why don't we do this? That latter is, a, is, is not a good philosophy. You shouldn't be putting money to use because you feel like you need to. You should put it to use because you see a very clear need in your business in a way that you know it's going to help grow and increase the profitability, or at least the long-term profitability of your business. You know, and deploying money in your business takes a decent amount of time and effort. I think there's this idea that we can just write checks and have things happen, and that's just not the case. Not, not always. There's a few exceptions, but even when you bring on consultants, people that are highly skilled contractors, which is a great way to grow your business, it still requires, if you're doing it right, a decent amount of planning and thinking through how they're going to tie in and what your goals are and getting them onboarded into your systems. It takes time, either from you or from other team members, which are, you know, obviously you're going to have to pay them to do that. And so, um, Definitely a great way to do it, but make sure you're thinking, you're counting that cost as you're bringing people in. If you're taking the mindset of writing checks again and just expecting things to happen without some kind of initial upfront investment, usually ends poorly. With with businesses, you know, again going back to those economies or at least the diminishing returns, as you get bigger, it's harder to deploy that money. But as you grow additional businesses in different markets, it's harder to focus. You know, it's so much harder to run five different sites than one. And this is tough, right? There's, there's probably a sweet spot. I mean, I, I'm currently running two businesses. One of the reasons I sold trolling motors is because it's hard to focus on three different things at once. And so, but at the same time, you know, right channel radio is my CV business is only going to get so big before you have a real diminishing returns. And same thing with, with e-commerce fuel, probably to a lesser degree, it's probably a larger market, but so you've got to balance that as well with the subduplement returns. It's, you run into kind of limitations on both sides of those. And then finally, you know, in, in terms of your usually is your business is usually your best bet. This is really assuming your, your personal financial house is in order. If you don't have, you know, at least like a good solid six month emergency fund where you can live for six months or support yourself or the people who depend on you for, for six months in the bank, 
if you're paying down a high interest debt, I mean, I know student loans are, can be tricky because, you know, sometimes people come out of school and they got a lot of student debt. And I don't know if you necessarily need to pay that completely off, especially if it's a low rate before you try to dabble in business. But if you're paying down high interest credit card debt uh, or you don't have an emergency fund, you, you really need to start there. I mean, I, I know, I don't know anyone who's been a really successful entrepreneur that's done really well in business, but is struggling in terms of their personal finances. It just doesn't work. So, I mean, if emergency fund for security, a high interest debt for just an immediate return. I mean, you're paying down a credit card with 20, 25% interest. That's a great return, even in terms of compared to a, a business you run on your own. Point number three, if all your money is tied up, something is wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, going back to, again, where I have my money invested, I have 18% of my net worth in available cash, not in IRAs, not in CDs where it's tied up, but where if an amazing opportunity came across tomorrow, I could just write a check to jump on that. You know, having cash for opportunities is a really powerful thing. So few people really don't make the effort to have a little cash, not a cash cushion, but really a, a fund where you can jump on opportunities. It's powerful. You know, in, in the, the episode that I referred to over at the Tropical MBA, you know, Dan and Ian, they really talk about how trying to beat inflation is, is, is kind of a fool's errand. And, and I kind of agree with them because sure, maybe you lose two to 3% on inflation every year. But if you hold that cash and it's liquid and ready to go, um, potentially, you know, you might lose, let's say you, you have to hold on to it for maybe five years. Maybe you lose 10, 12, 15% of the value, but you have an opportunity that comes along where you're able to get something at half of a market rate or be able to jump on an opportunity that is just, maybe it's not a screaming financial deal, but it lets you get into a market you other, otherwise wouldn't have. You know, I'll pay that small inflation tax to have the opportunity to seize investments when they come. So that's definitely something that uh, as you grow, I think it's important to allocate money to. Number four, invest heavily in your business, but hedge your bets. And this one's a little more controversial. You know, why, why, why hedge your bets against your business, even if it's doing well? well? Well, first, I think even the best things come to an end. None of us can perfectly see what's coming on the pipe. None of us knows what's going to happen. And as hard as we work and as smart as we like to think we are, um, you know, things can wet the bed at some point. And so I think it's good to have at least a little bit invested somewhere else to, to hedge in the opportunity that you're wrong or something really, really bad happens. I also think it's good to start to try to have some of your money growing passively. For some of the reasons we talked about before, you know, investing money in your business, it takes time. There's diminishing returns. At some point, you know, if you try to grow horizontally and grow the number of businesses you have, that's going to lead to distraction. And so even if you do have a lower amount, even if the average returns are going to be lower, I think it's interesting to, to learn how to do that, to be able to leverage purely, you know, someone else's work and investment, even if it's a lower return. And also, there's some non-financial benefits that come with some purchases. Sometimes it's good to invest in things that maybe they, they really uh, bring something in terms of a higher quality of life that is, is not financial, but it really helps out in other ways. And I'll talk about what I mean about that in just a minute. Uh, and then finally, sometimes you just don't want to risk things. For example, I've got a daughter. She's 18 months old. And I, you know, I, I want to be, I would love to be able to send her to school with a good chunk of a money to be able to pay for that. I, I don't, you well, know, I don't want her to have completely funded college experience. I'd like her to have to hustle a little bit and pay for some of that so she appreciates it and takes it more seriously. 
But if I risk everything, if I took all, if I expected to take all of my money, pour it back into my business, and in 18 years be able to draw out from the business to pay for a college, that's just not something I'm willing to gamble with given how seriously, uh, how important I think that is. 18 years is a long time in the future. And so even if I risk having it be a, you know, a potentially lower amount or having to contribute more to get to my goal, I'm willing to do that given the importance of the goal. So in terms of what I'm investing in, in these kind of categories, in terms of restricted retirements accounts. So these are going to be things like either stocks that are in an IRA or cash that's sitting in an IRA. Money I can pull out for a business fund, for example. I have about 10%, I think actually exactly 9% in those types of funds, those restricted accounts. And then I have 25% in other. Mostly that's real estate. That's going to be money that's like in my primary home that I've uh, you know put into that. And that's probably a little bit heavy. I think if anything, you know, I, I, I'd say that I'm definitely heavy on, on that side of things. I can see how people would say that. But for me, I, you know, I, I kind of like that. And I'll dive into the really getting into a home and trying to pay that off. Why I think that's something that is potentially valuable as an investment strategy in just a minute. But part of that's the majority, vast majority of that is real estate. But also a little bit of it is things like Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, I own not a ton. I own a very small amount of Bitcoin. Things like that fall into that category as well. So a couple of things to think about. I want to talk about, you know, kind of some of the high risk and, and high risk and lower risk ideas for this passive, these different types of investments. Before I do a couple of disclaimers, one, I'm not very good about this right now. I'm really starting to think through it right now. I'm just trying to get better at it. I've been thinking a lot about it, but it's not something historically I have said I've had a great track record at, which is why I kind of want to do this episode because I've been thinking through it a lot, trying to get better at it, trying to you know expand my ability to to invest passively and hedge my bets in my business. But again, it's something where I'm very much in the beginning stages. And secondly, I am not an investment advisor. You always hear these kind of cliche little disclaimers when people talk about anything regarding money. But these are all things I'm thinking about. I'm not making a recommendation at all for you to invest in them. If you do, strongly recommend you get some professional advice because none of these are vetted and there's a lot of risk in all of the things I'm going to talk about. So the first, first thing, if you're thinking about expanding, hedging your bets in terms of low risk investment ideas, if you're going to do index funds or you're going to invest in the stock market rather, you know, unless you are really uh, spending a lot of time in the stock market, analyzing stocks, you know that market well. You even maybe have a, a legal informational advantage in terms of knowing a submarket or an industry exceptionally well. I would highly recommend stick with low cost index funds and just kind of a regular balanced portfolio in terms of you know your uh, your international, your domestic stocks, uh, a little bit of bonds, and some high growth. Uh, you know, there's kind of a, I won't get into the, how you balance a portfolio, but there's a lot of different asset classes in terms of equity and, and debt. If you're younger, you're going to want to put more into the equity of the stocks versus the bond, of course. But stick to, the bottom line is stick to index funds. They're going to have lower costs than mutual funds. Really, most, it's most professional stock pickers, most professional portfolio advisors and, and managers, the vast majority of them don't even beat a simple index fund, which is really just a set group of stocks that is very low cost. And it tracks, uh, usually tracks like something like the S&P 500 or the Russell Index or the, you know, something like that. And I'd recommend using Wealthfront. Uh, Wealthfront is a service that, that does this really, really well for you. It, it really finds all the low cost index funds. It makes sure that you're kind of 
you're, you're balanced. You have a balanced portfolio among those four or five different index funds that it sells off funds that do well and buys ones that haven't done as well, which is something you want to do to keep that portfolio balanced. And it costs a lot less than to have somebody actively manage it in a traditional sense. Like if you hired an active manager to do this for your portfolio, a lot of times it's going to cost anywhere of one to 2% of assets, whereas Wealthfront's going to charge you about a quarter of a percent. And I think, I think actually, uh, Joe Magnati over at Empire Flippers mentioned this in a comment and they're who I'm migrating my funds to right now. Secondly, um, stuff like, you know, social lending sites, Prosper, Lending Club. These are things where I've looked at, and again, I haven't put my own money here, but considering strongly putting some money there, because from what I've read, people get after chargebacks tend to get between five to 8% pretty consistently. And they haven't had a, there hasn't been a time, I think, where these peer to peer lending sites have really had to weather a pretty severe economic crisis in terms of, you know, back in 2008, I don't think they were nearly as, as popular as they are now. So that could be a, a potential issue. But if, if you're trying to get a, a little bit more return on your money in a risk adjusted way, it could be worth looking at. And then finally, another low risk thing I alluded to this earlier is getting a home and paying it off. And there's a lot of people who are going to say, why are you paying off a home? You know, interest rates are still pretty low. You can get a mortgage for 4%. Why not use that money somewhere else? And I can, I can see that. But from my perspective, if you get a home and you work towards paying it off, and let's say you, you finally pay it off, it's one, it's a big, even if you don't pay it off, that equity you have in there is an inflation hedge because you're paying into an asset. And even if inflation takes off, the value of your house, it's a physical asset, like not exactly like, but similar to gold. It's something that uh, is, is a physical asset that you can hold. And so it's going to rise as inflation rises in terms of the value of it. It's an inflation hedge. It gives you a lot of personal security. I mean, being think about how much more likely you would be to take on some hairy, ambitious business projects if you knew you had a paid off home and you didn't have to worry about you know, yourself or especially if you have a family, you didn't have to worry about uh, your family getting kicked out on the street if the business went belly up. So, and maybe this is something that obviously this isn't going to apply to everybody. You know, if you're a digital nomad, you know, homeownership is a real dirty word. I understand that. And so this isn't everyone's case, but I think potentially in the long run, there's a pretty big sense of security about having a paid for residence. And then finally, it frees up cash flow. This is no matter where you are, having a residence that's paid for if you're living in one spot, it frees up your cash flow, and uh, everyone's got to have somewhere to live. So, and then plus, it just there's something nice about having a having a place that's your own. So we could have a whole discussion and a whole debate about this, I think. And I, you know, I totally understand the rent versus buying issue. I I am not here trying to tell you that buying a home is the best investment because there's a lot of additional expenses in a lot of markets. I think renting makes sense. Renting gives you a lot more flexibility. But depending on where you are in life and depending on uh, kind of what's important to you, I think it can be potentially a good combination of bringing value to your life, hedging, hedging against inflation and uh, having a moderate return as well. Few, here's a few ideas that I'm exploring and these are a little riskier, a little more non-traditional. Uh, one, self-directed IRAs. So this is interesting. This is where you take an IRA, the money you put into a tax-favored IRA, but you can use it for, for non-traditional investments. Let's say you got a buddy who is starting up a restaurant and you want to invest in his business. Strongly recommend against that. Restaurants are, for the most part, terrible places to invest money. They, uh, I think they probably have like one of the biggest turnover failure rates of any business. But just to use a terrible example, 
with a self-directed IRA, you could do that. So if you want to use one of these, you have to sign up with a special self-directed IRA company, and they're a little more expensive. I think you know, you're probably going to look to pay, I'm guessing here, but roughly $250 to maybe $500 a year for administration fees. And there are some rules. You can't use your IRA money to invest in your own personal business. So I couldn't use a self-directed IRA to invest in Right Channel Radios because I control that. I'm the controlling I run the business. They have to be businesses that other people manage, but it really opens you up to just just about anything, you know, investing in farms or startups or any of this kind of stuff. So that's one thing to look into. The second thing, the Jobs Act, I think it's the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. And this is something that's coming down uh, pretty quickly here, I think. Obama passed this law in the U.S. recently. And, and, and a lot of these are going to be U.S.-based. I, I apologize for folks that are listening outside, you know, uh, U.K., Australia, Canada, other, other, you know, Europe, everywhere else. Again, a lot of these are going to be U.S.-based, and, and uh, it's just it's, it's the market I know, and, and so I apologize for that. Hopefully, you can still get some value if you're, if you're outside the U.S. But the Jobs Act is, before, if you wanted to invest as an angel or in startups, or in a lot of like kind of these, these deals aren't aren't regulated by the SEC per se. They're not IPOs. They're not publicly traded companies. You had to either most of the time you had to be what's called an accredited investor, and so you had to have a pretty beefy net worth or a pretty beefy income. And what the Jobs Act is doing is it's, it's allowing companies one to be able to apply crowdsourced kind of strategies to fundraising. So just like with Kickstarter, you can go on and try to sell a certain number of Manal bags. In the case of you know Jimmy, Jimmy Hayes, you can go on and say, we're starting this business. We want to raise $2 million and we're selling equity at $5,000 a pop or however much you want to put in. So that it paves the road for that. And it allows individuals that are in much lower income brackets that maybe aren't making you know high six figures or Two, three hundred thousand dollars a year. It allows them to invest up to a percentage, you know, kind of five to ten thousand range or ten percent of their income or earnings range into those kind of deals. So it makes it possible for non-accredited guys and investors to get in on those, which is which is cool. And so obviously going to be a lot riskier, uh, require more discretion. It's for people who are uh, in terms of their vetting these investment uh, decisions because it's not, you know, there's a lot more risk, obviously, but but pretty interesting in terms of investment opportunities uh, and the ease of which it's, you know, it reduces a lot of the friction. I'm, I'd be, I'm going to be pretty interested to see how this plays out. Super high risk gambles, things like Bitcoin, for example, like why do I invest in Bitcoin? And again, I have a very small amount, uh, you know, I'd say less than a percent of my of my net worth is in Bitcoin. But why did I invest in that? You know, kind of like Drew said in an interview recently, we, we did Drew Sanaki. It's a hedge. It's, it's, it's something where I look at, it's very risky, but I see a lot of potential in that. And I, you know, I, I think there's a you know, 90, 95% chance it's my investment is worth nothing in five to 10 years. And I think there's a very small, maybe 5% chance that it's, it's worth 20, 30, 40x of what it is now. So those kind of things are, are things that I, I like to do. And again, Look at it more more than anything else as as a really high you know high risk gamble, but I think they're kind of very fun to do in very very small amounts. And then really you know kind of some other things betting against macro trends. This is something that that Jim Rogers talks about in his book Street Smarts, and you know he bet against the housing crisis. He's made a lot of his money by making very large bets against things he was very very sure of. So for example, right now he he's predicting, he really thinks in the in the coming years that we're going to see a huge increase in food prices. And so I believe he's he's betting very heavily on uh, on food 
because he thinks just you know farmers. You think about the you know what's your average farmer look like? Your average farmer is probably in their fifties, getting close to retirement. You don't have young a lot of young family members or young people coming into farming. It's so the supply side, your 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 labor is reducing, and I think he argues that inventories are decreasing as well. I'm not telling you to go out and bet on food prices. And he himself, Jim, would say, don't, don't just, you know, you'd be crazy to just go out and bet on food prices long term because I'm saying this. But what he's saying is he, he's researched the market extensively and he knows, he feels really certain about this. And so he's betting a lot of money on that. But again, he's done a ton of due diligence. I mean, another potential thing you could look at, like um, look at macro trends, like the collapse of malls. Another thing we've been talking about on the podcast, uh, the collapse of uh, suburban malls. You can find a way to be able to bend against that and, and profit as, you know, sadly that industry probably is going to be struggling. That's, that's another potential idea. And these, these are much riskier, they're crazier things, but, but they're the kind of things I'm, I'm trying to think about in terms of uh, hedging my bets and, bet, and investing passively in a small portion of my portfolio and my net worth. You know, one thing, uh, one thing I don't like I've looked at is being a landlord. I've talked to some people that are landlords, they own rental properties. Man, it, <laughs> if you're looking at in it in terms of an investment perspective, especially passive investment perspective, it sounds like a nightmare for me. It's not passive. It's a lot of work. Uh, and even if you hire you know, a management company, it's, it's still going to be not totally hands-off and that's going to reduce your, your income. And, and just the, the returns that I see without factoring in some pretty high uh, increases in the prices of the properties, so an appreciation of the house value, they're not that great. You know, they're five, 10 percent-ish, if, if that. A lot of times people leverage houses to get into them, and so you're taking on a lot of risk in terms of debt. Some people say, well, yeah, but I'll, at the end of the time, even if someone else pays my mortgage and I break even, I'll have a paid-off property. Well, yes, hypothetically, but you have to have the risk potentially of leveraging that. You take on the risk of the asset going down in value. You have the hassle and the mind space of being a landlord or managing that. And to pay something off like that, it's going to take, unless you're making additional capital and uh, equity payments, which is going to reduce your, 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 the ability to use those funds for other things, it's going to take 30 years to pay that house off. Uh, you know? And so let's say $100,000 house, I mean, well, I'm not going to use numbers because that'd be a little bit, we could go all sorts of ways with that. But I would, I, I think, you know, for me, I look at it as, okay, I'm going to be a landlord for 20, 20, 30 years. And at the end of that time, I'll have a house that's paid for, for, you know, $200,000, no, thank you. I think 20, 30 years with using that money, you could make a lot more money in a business or in some of these passive investments. So there's probably some landlords listening to this that are swearing off the show. And I'd love to hear your perspective on it, but it's not something that seems very appealing to me. So given that, you know, I'd love to love to hear what you think about, about this. Head on over to ecommercefuel.com forward slash invest and would, would love to engage with you in the comments here. So, so please do that. So in summary, your business is usually your best bet, but your business is also usually your best bet, but not all the time. Make sure you're thinking through some of those potential downsides to investing. Don't invest in your business just for the sake of putting cash to work. Make sure there's a good reason for it and make sure your personal house is in order. If all your money is tied up, something is wrong. You need to have, you know, maybe not so if you're in the very early stages of your business, but especially if you've got something going and you're rolling, make sure you're kicking off some of that money for a for an opportunities fund to keep in liquid cash. Liquid cash is redundant. Just also just say cash that's not tied up. And then finally, invest heavily in your business 
but hedge your bets. Again, I'd put the majority of my money into, into business, but make sure you got a little side pot so that you don't have to take those, uh, don't have to move into those cut rate nursing homes when you're, when you're 70. So I want to end on a quote from, from Jim Rogers again from his book, Street Smarts. Most successful investors do nothing most of the time. Just wait patiently. Wait until you see money lying over there in a corner. That is the kind of investment you should make. You should wait until you find something that you are so thoroughly sure of based on your wealth of knowledge and something that is so cheap that buying it is as foolproof as going over to the corner and picking up the money. This is what successful investors do. It's what I do. They don't do a lot of jumping around. Warren Buffett, he rarely changes his holdings and neither do I. So really, I think a really interesting way to think about investments. You know, I covered a lot of different things, uh, you know, everything from investing in your home to Bitcoin on the crazy end to, uh, you know, index funds, all sorts of stuff. And I think, you know, but I think it's a really interesting framework. Being active with your investments does not mean you're being smart with your investments. You really should be investing in things you know really well, that you've researched thoroughly. A lot of times that's going to be your business because you know that super well as long as it's got a track record or potentially on the passive side, a few things that you've researched really well as well and are willing to, to hedge with. So, so I hope you stayed with me. If you have to the end of this crazy ranting uh, <laughs> investments podcast, really appreciate it. Again, love to hear what you think at ecommercefuel.com forward slash invest. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.